0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.
1: AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. On today's program, we're discussing our latest multimedia poetry feature on newyorker.com excerpts from a new translation of Dante Alighieri's Purgatorio. Here with me is the translator, Mary Jo Bang, whose own poetry has also appeared in our pages. She's received the National Book Critics Circle Award, a Hotter Fellowship, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and a Berlin Prize Fellowship. Mary Jo, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me here.
0: So tell us how you decided to take on the Divine Comedy. I know you've done The Inferno. Why did you uh, end up doing the whole thing, I understand that you were inspired, at least in part, by Caroline Bergvall's Via, 48 Dante Variations. Can you say a bit about that?
1: Sure. That's what started the Inferno, and that was um, a long time ago now. And um, at first it was just a lark because she had a found poem made up of the first three lines of the Inferno using uh, 47 translations. And I thought how interesting that there is no right way to translate three fairly simple lines. Right, right. And how would I do it then? And since everyone had done kind of exhaustively, had adhered to the original, what if I took the kind of translation liberties that a translator can take with a poem? And that's what began The Inferno. when I finished The Inferno, and it was published in 2012— Everyone kept asking me, will you do Purgatorio? (laughs) And that effort had taken six years of my life. And I thought, I'm not so sure. I mean, it was satisfying. It was wonderful. I loved doing it. I love the results of it. But do I want to spend another six years, um, you know, walking Mount Purgatory with Dante? And I thought, I I don't know yet. But what happened was a couple of years later— I love games, so I thought, it's a lot of fun to play that game, (laughs) and why don't you just see how much fun it is by doing the first three lines? Wow. So I did, and it was fun, and just as much fun as uh, Inferno. So I did the first canto, and then I thought, well, this is dangerous because what happens is I love the translation, but I don't necessarily love doing the notes. I love having them done but the doing them takes an entirely different mindset and it can become very tedious i can spend a day researching something that um like hercules right and then boil that down to two sentences sure so i thought you can't go forward unless you do the notes in sequence as you do a canto you do the notes because i had waited until the end oh. of inferno and spent a year and a half doing those notes And that was misery. So um, I did the first canto, and I did the first canto notes. And then I started the second canto, and I was having so much fun that I couldn't stop and do the notes. I did the third canto. And then I said, now you're in trouble (laughs) because you have two. And I stopped. Wow. And that was maybe summer of 2014. And then coincidentally— This um, dantist in um, England, an emeritus dantist, Nicholas Havley, um, who's very, very accomplished and um, has many books about Dante, he emailed me and he said he had become aware of my inferno and he decided that he wanted to do a multi-translator purgatorio and would I contribute some cantos. And I thought, well, <laughs> you're going to make me go forward. They don't keep pulling you me back in, exactly. And that's what started it again. I think that he wanted three cantos, and one of them was Canto Five. So that made me do the notes and the next two cantos. And by that time, you're in. Yeah. So there's no turning back. Well, and I want to talk about the notes in
0: a minute because I I do think the notes are really exquisite. But I want to ask first about your process of translating. What what was the process of translating Dante like for you? Did you do from the Italian? I think you already sort of hinted at that answer. But did you take other translations? What translations uh, held up for you or were points of departure?
1: Right. In the Inferno, it was slightly different from how I've approached the Purgatorio because the internet has changed. So, on the first one, I used actual volumes of prior translations in English. So, going back to Longfellow, the first um, translation into English, all the way up to, at that time, the most recent translation into English, at least in America, was Robert Hollander, Robert and Jean Hollander, um, their translation and maybe 10 to 15 in between there. And what I would do is I would read a canto in all of those 15 translations, and then I would go to several books of commentary, and especially Charles S. Singleton, who has an enormous volume um, separate from the poem. And so I would read the commentary, and I would think about it, And I would translate it based on those parameters, where people had pushed the language. Then over time, I began to also use a bilingual dictionary because what was so interesting to me and remains interesting is that, one, there is no equivalent um, between two languages, no exact equivalent, because context is everything. Right. So um, I saw that people were... Beginning to coast as translators. They were standing on the shoulders of five people who had come before, Mm -hmm. and of course, we're in awe of those people. Right. And they don't begin to think of it as a human um, being in that situation. And most of these people who are translating are not poets.
0: Mm -hmm. By human being, you mean Dante in the poem, or you mean a human being translating?
1: I, well, Dante in the poem and the character Dante yes. in the poem. So, yeah, yeah. you know, the the whole thing of character motivation, um, scene, you know, what makes sense here? And if instead you're only looking at words, a word of course makes sense. But if it's not fitting into the lexicon around it, say the, the lexicon around it is about being on a boat – um, and, you know, you're not taking that into consideration, then you're tamping down the kind of narrative excitement and potential for rhetorical surface where you can have a lot more sound play um, if you pay attention to opportunities.
0: Well, and Dante is so, such a fascinating character. I love how you describe him uh, in the poem and also in your translation in these early cantos. He's sort of a, a bit flummoxed. You can tell that he's still <laughs> reeling from his time in hell. Uh, but he's also, um, in Inferno, he's often, you know, um, kind of gloating sometimes. And that's what I think we love about, or at least some of what I love about the Inferno. It's very human in its rage and it's its talking about rage as its punishments are, of course, uh, notably apt. But there's also something about him that he weeps, you know, he's he's very human and humane at other times. So there's a kind of interesting tension, I think, as he enters this land of kind of in-betweenness.
1: Well, I think it's very interesting what you're saying about um, sometimes he's really angry about what he's seeing because if you look at his own life, the author's life, and of course that corresponds to the character, um, Inferno's written shortly after he's been exiled and he can't return to his home uh, on pain of death, and all of his funds have been appropriated. And so that anger at how people misuse other people is very fresh, very raw, very real, and we feel it. Whereas the Purgatorio is written um, later, so he goes into exile in 1302, and people aren't sure when Inferno begins, someplace between 1304 and 1307, but they know it's finished by 1309. And then he begins Purgatorio at some point and finishes maybe by 1314. So that's 12 years when he finishes past that. And in some ways, looking back at the translation, I too have noticed a mellowing and a I think now he's shifted both in terms of his own development as a human being and his, that indignation and rage has quieted and been replaced by a lot of thoughtfulness. And he's also been doing a lot of deep reading and talking to really smart people. Yeah. <laughs> and there's that beautiful moment in Canto I of Purgatorio where he's looking at the sky and the blue sapphires pooling in the sky, and he says, You know, I could have the kind of delight in seeing now that I've left that sad making dead air. And of course, it's the dead air of the dead, um, but also it was deadening to him. A lot of people point to that as part of the beauty that is in Purgatorio that isn't in Inferno. There are other things in Inferno, but not particularly those moments.
0: Right. Um, when did you first come to Inferno, or was it, you know, when you sat down to write about it?
1: No, it was in um, 1990. I'm trying to think, maybe 1994 or five. I had gone to the MFA program at Columbia and met a fellow student, Timothy Donnelly, who's also become a poet. And um, we were talking about the fact that we were so ill-prepared by our own upbringing. We were both, um, you know, had working-class backgrounds, and there were so many great books we had never read, and we were listing them, and at some point I said, you know, I've never read The Divine Comedy, and he said, I haven't either. Let's do it together, and we, we both said we had it on our bookshelves. I said, I have a translation, but I'll read yours. Tell me which one you have. And he said, no, no, we'll read two different translations. I never would have imagined doing that, but it was such a brilliant thing because what we did was we took turns reading out loud from one translation or the other, and then afterwards I would follow in my translation And we would talk about the translation differences and what we liked, what we thought, you know, worked better or not. Sure, right. And then we'd look at the notes at the back of of each translation. And I don't know that I would be the translator I am had I not had that experience. And then um, we read Inferno. This was over one winter. Wow. Yeah. And um, we read Purgatorio. And then we got to Paradiso, and after the first canto, we looked at each other and said, "We're done."
0: <laughs> that's. I think, unfortunately, that's what happens a lot. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think that one of the things I love about both uh, the books you've done, the Inferno and Purgatorio, is that they're so unique in their highly contemporary colloquial diction. What What brought that about?
1: Well, I think I noticed when I was looking at the Bergvall that because she had used translations over, you know, many decades, and yet they all sounded very similar. And some of them actually adhered to the Italian word order. And I thought, that's not translation. Translation is carrying over one language into another. Why would you feel compelled? And I didn't know whether it was because of this awe about Dante and the poem, but it didn't do, it wasn't, a good service to Dante. And then when I began to think, well, what would it be like to drop the register and put it in contemporary since nobody was doing that? And then I thought, well, rhyme is clearly important here, but we don't use rhyme as much now. And so it tends to suggest light verse or nursery rhyme. Mm. And so we have to be very careful with rhyme. But instead, what contemporary poetry does is substitute, as you know, a lot of other phonic echoes. So assonance, alliteration, internal rhyme. So I thought, okay, that's what I'll do. That that's I'll... your rhyme. Exactly. What?
0: And did you feel at all, you had no hesitation to get rid of the rima, the rhyme scheme he's using, or are you gesturing toward that? How did you reckon with that?
1: Well, Two things. One is some people give up entirely and just use sure. prose. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, okay, course, yeah. I, I'm at least I'm midway here. I'm going to use lines. I am a poet. He was a poet. He wanted it to be a poem. On the other hand, because English is such a rhyme poor language, and especially compared to Italian, that we really can't do something like terza rima over a book length poem. It's hard. Yeah. It, well, and it pushes you into saying things in an odd way sure. that calls too much attention away from the poem and to your virtuosity or lack of virtuosity. I think that that's the thing if you're going to bring something over into the contemporary and if vernacular is the contemporary, you can't say thou and canst <laughs> unless you're camping it up <laughs> you know you can then yeah, but you can't do it seriously plus How are you going to get anyone to read something that sounds so quaint? So why not put it in the language we use? And then, of course, what was interesting was later reading that that's exactly what Dante wanted, um, which I didn't know at that point. But that he said that literary Latin, which was usually the language used for poetry, was a dead language and it wouldn't change over time and he wanted his poem to change over time and he said it was too noble and that it didn't have the warmth he wanted the language with which we speak to our beloveds and our friends and our family and he wanted everyone to be able to read it anyone who could speak italian of course not everyone could but literary Latin would have only been available to, you know, academics Scholars or the clericals or, you know. And so he wanted this to be for everyone. He wanted it to change over time and he wanted it to have heat, the heat of what language has, which is the human experience.
0: Well said. Well said. That's such a modern notion. I think of Dante as the most modern of poets and I think of the poem, especially the Inferno, as modern. I was thinking about that in terms of your poem. Were you thinking about the contemporary echoes? Uh, I certainly, when I was reading Purgatorio, thought, well, yes, we're kind of in this strange Purgatorio now. Is, is there a kind of Purgatory that you're commenting on as well?
1: Well, I think there's a Purgatory that Dante's commenting on that is not afterlife. And I think that was true of Inferno as well. He's talking about the social fabric and what people do to mess it up. And that when you mess it up, there should be some kind of punishment for it that is fitting, and then he has, as you know, these brilliant um, responses. this sin gets this punishment, and it's absolutely exquisitely perfect for that sin, and in purgatory too, the penitence for envy or wrath you know matches the sin, but it's not sin, it's error it's mm. not church related. Mm -hmm. And historically, what's interesting in the Reformation period, Dante was actually seen as a Protestant poet. And when someone told me that, um, who's a Renaissance scholar, I said, well, I see him as a secular poet. And I do. And I think that that speaks to why this poem is still read, why we're still drawn to it. And again, he said, I want it to last forever. I want the language to change because he's talking about perpetual problems of the social fabric. He knows these are human elements of envy, of pride, of greed. You know, we're not going to change. That's what we are. It's part of our makeup. It's part of the hardwiring. But we can do a better job of understanding it and understanding how to control our own greed and our own rage as well as having to have safeguards in terms of the other people who are still under the sway of those things.
0: Absolutely. I, I, I think you really nailed it with why he's still relevant. I love that idea of him as secular you know, because I grew up thinking of it as an allegory. But I think that's not exactly that, you know, certainly there's the allegorical qualities. But it's more, as you say, a kind of moral tale, you know, that involves talking about humanity and not just sort of angels only.
1: Well, and even language changes. So, you know, the idea of virtue, we always think of that as Christian virtue, right? But the idea of virtue goes back, of course, to the Greeks, and Aristotle talks about virtues. Virtues are simply excellence, and excellence is a kind of mean, in inequality between too little and too much. So if you have rage, for instance, you want to have appropriate indignation when you see something, like if another human being is being mistreated or an animal. You want to be angry enough to act and to protect that. But on the other hand, too much rage, where you have indignation about everything, about minor differences, then that's an excess. So the idea of having anger is part of the human quality— And it's actually a virtue. So virtue is neutral. It's just those excellent properties of being a human. And then it can go overboard or too little.
0: I I love that because you're also in the poem, and this reflects in the notes, but I think in the poem itself, Riffing off these excellent other things that you like, um, whether it's singers, the Talking Heads, the Beatles. I mean, I think they appear in early in the first canto. Uh, Walt Whitman, Salinger, uh, Camus, Bob Dylan. <laughs> Bob Dylan. So tell us about you know this conversation that you're having with these other uh, figures.
1: Well, when I began the Inferno, and I realized that Dante. Was incorporating a lot of work from um, previous poets, Greek and Roman poets, so Ovid, Virgil, Lucan. He's actually doing what we might even call um, plagiarism, but it's not; it's appropriation because all of the other learned people have read the same books, so they know um, it's who more he's, sampling. Let's say exactly. <laughs> so he's sampling, and then um, as I went further into this, that is a medieval way of constructing poems, where you take these various pieces, it becomes a lineage, it keeps those works alive, and it puts you in that context of these people. So the same as Eliot, for instance, including Dante, and where the people going over London Bridge um, are like the people in the foyer of hell. When I realized that this was part of the medieval um, way of constructing a poem, and that Dante was doing it. Then I thought, well, if I'm going to bring this into the present, wouldn't you then include people who have existed since then, who have contributed to the lineage that brings us to today? So Shakespeare, Milton, Gertrude Stein, Sylvia Plath, Emily Dickinson, and then he also includes songwriters. So wouldn't you have John Coltrane? Wouldn't you have Bob Dylan? And, of course, these are part of my growing up. So in that way, I had decided at some point, write this as if this is a 35-year-old person. It's not going to be a man. It's not going to be a woman. It's a 35-year-old poet. And that 35-year-old poet has a way of using phonic echoes, has a way of sampling, has a way of including culture. I didn't want to destroy the, the real terror, the real pathos.
0: I, I think that's really fascinating. I'm also fascinated that you mentioned Eliot because it sort of comes to one of the questions I have. Of course, Eliot has the famous notes to The Wasteland, which I love because they're sort of absurd and part of the poem. The poem isn't really complete without the notes. What did you think about for those notes? Because they're some of my favorite parts of of what you've done but also they're so integral to our understanding of Dante as a whole?
1: Well, I think that there were a number of considerations. One is that there are things that the people reading it at its, in its moment would have known, and certainly a lot of the mythology. Sure. But we don't have that kind of knowledge, or very few of us do. So how can I make a note that both explains what that myth is— but what that myth meant in terms of this story, what it might have meant historically, and that's why the notes can sometimes become so burdensome because I'm trying to exhaustively think about every aspect of, you know, a character or a mythological figure and and then try to imagine what it means in this story and then what it means emotionally. So – That was one kind of note, um, the historical person and what role they're playing in the story and what role they played in Dante's history. And then there were – when I was doing the sampling, I felt like, well, that may or may not be missed if I don't attribute it to someone. Plus, they should get their 15 minutes of fame. (laughs) And so then I did that. Um, And then I thought – I want to contextualize that, though. I don't want yeah. to just a line out of a poem.
0: No, no. That's that's. I think what's great is you're not just saying, "Oh, this." I use this line. You're saying this connects to something else. You're also connecting the song, say, to that lineage, as you put it.
1: Yes, and the line in poetry, and so um, Plath's "The Grave Cave" and um, that overhead script as you go into the foyer of hell. That echoing of the personal political of time, it's just – I think the work wants that and that's what he was doing with his own appropriations. And so I've tried to do that on some level. It echoes in a weird way
0: your initial kind of encounter with the poem, back and forth, uh, the the talking it out, you know, and also discussing. Because that's what I think is, is very generous about your notes in particular is they allow someone to enter the poem themselves and, and kind of have an argument back and forth.
1: Well, and I think that the other um, aspect of the notes is – I trying to rationalize my own translation decisions. So for instance, in in one of the cantos, in one of the early cantos in Purgatorio, um, Dante and Virgil encounter Balacqua, um, who is lounging in a shadow and uh, being very sarcastic about Dante's hurry to get up to the top of <laughs> Mount Purgatory. He says, Fine, Mr. Lightning Bolt, you go right on up to the top. And at that point, Dante realizes who he is. And commentators link this to a bookseller that Dante used to know who would sit around all day and Dante was always um, teasing him about his laziness. And so he's using him as an example. But this, um, you go right on up, Mr. Lightning Bolt, well, it says, I, I forget what the exact Italian is at this point, but... I looked up who's the fastest person on earth now, and it turns out that Usain Bolt, the Jamaican sprinter, is still the fastest person alive. And I checked it the other day to make sure nobody had actually taken the title away uh, because then I might have to change the note and say in, in such and such a year he was. Um, but anyway, so fine, Mr. Lightning Bolt. You go right on up. There's a lot of fun, I think, in that, even if you don't know who Mr. Lightning Bolt is. But I want to credit Usain Bolt, and then it makes more sense, Mr. Lightning Bolt. So there are those multiple layers of both history, meaning, fun to be had, and creating a parallel universe.
0: I love that about the poem and about your translation. That's really brilliant. I was also thinking about hearing you talk about it. It made me think about two things. One, the other characters in the poem, and I wondered who struck you uh, either in the Purgatorio or maybe even in the Inferno, and also Virgil as a character. Do you see him as a separate character or just this guide? How does he work?
1: Oh, very much as a character. And I think that as I was working on Inferno, that was what struck me, is that with so many translations— the characters don't become delineated, and I realized that what delineates someone mainly is how they speak. So anybody can walk in a room, you look at them, you make some certain assumptions about them, but the moment the person speaks, you know so much more about their attitudes towards so many things, and they become real, and they become you know, fully developed as a person. And the more you talk to them, the more you know about them and the more they define themselves. So I realized that everyone had to have their own voice and that everyone does have their own voice. So every time I encounter a voice and it starts speaking in the poem, I'm listening to the original and I'm picking up on what I think are clues that Dante's creating – in terms of how that person speaks and their attitudes. So in Inferno, there's Fernata, who is so arrogant, and he's being punished for his arrogance. So he has to sound arrogant. And if he doesn't, then you don't really get the full picture. So in Balacqua, who's such a riot, and of course, Beckett uses Balacqua in several works. And Because these are appealing characters, they're types, but they're so beautifully delineated as a type with such humor, with such finesse, that uh, we remember them and they become iconic for us.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, my big last question is, do you think you're going to tackle Paradiso?
1: I don't know. Um, When I finished Purgatorio, I felt so excited. I thought, of course, I must, I must, tomorrow. (laughs) But then that quieted down as I started doing the notes. Was it
0: like in grad school when you got to Paradiso and you thought, "Uh, maybe not?
1: Well, that has always been there because how to make Paradiso interesting um, so that I'll want to read it. And then if I want to read it, Will somebody else want to read it? Plus, I've learned by doing a lot of reading how complicated it is. No one really understands the philosophy behind it because Dante is, again, sampling. He's reading so widely and so deeply, so many thinkers, and he's an original thinker himself. So he's coming up with a new approach based on all of these different things. And that has led to, of course, you know, all the commentary that's happened since. And the only way I can translate is to really feel that I understand the poem. And, you know, I knew with Inferno and, and I know with Purgatorio that I will never be Dante. I'll never be a man. I can't be medieval. I'm not Catholic. Um, but I am a poet. And that's what I fall back on is the poem he made and what I know about making a poem. But I have to understand what the poem is saying. I can't just plug words in there because it doesn't, it sure. doesn't make sense. It doesn't emotionally connect. It doesn't have the right subjectivity. So will I be able to understand Paradiso? I have no idea. So I have to finish the Purgatorio notes, which I think will take me until early next year. Then I have to rest uh, at the top of Mount Purgatory. (laughs) That's right. And then I have to read. Um, I have to read most of the works that he read, and that will take me easily a year. And then maybe I start, and it takes—it took me six years to translate Inferno. I am now starting the seventh year with Purgatorio, Say it's another, um, say finish in that year, the notes, so seven for that. I'm thinking Paradiso would be seven or eight years, and that's after the rest. Right. Like Balacqua, I need to sit in the shade. Um, And then um, I have to do that reading. So I'm not a young person, um, even though I'm playing at being 35 in Inferno. So I don't know if there's enough time to um, do Paradiso. And there are other things I want to do.
0: That's the other thing I was going to ask, is are you able to write your own poems in the midst? Or is that, in fact, is that necessary for you to just have that, you know, uh, outlet of one's own work?
1: I do continue to write my own work. And... um, I have a book in, in progress. I haven't conceived it as a book yet, so I just keep writing That's um, a fun poems. part of
0: writing a book, I find.
1: <laughs> well, it, but nervous making too. Sure. So will they all hold together? And um, how will they hold together? How will you make them hold together? So I haven't done that work. I can't at this point. I'm really very much um, at the top of the, the mountain and far away from the shore. Um But there are also other translation projects I'm involved in. Um, I'm working with Yuki Tanaka, translating the poems of Shuzo Takaguchi. This is the sixth year that we're working on that, and we're getting closer. Um, I've just finished translating a book of poems by the German poet Matthias Goritz. Uh, He's a novelist and poet and living. Uh, Takaguchi's dead, and obviously Dante's dead. Um, so I have other translation projects. I have teaching. I have um, my own work. And now I still have the notes to do. So um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'd love to do it only because or if only because um, I do have a compulsive streak. And to do two-thirds of something. I know. I know. It's and, almost
0: uh, braver to <laughs> do two-thirds. But it seems so hard to do. I couldn't yeah. do it.
1: Well, again, can I make it interesting? Sure. That's the whole thing.
0: Do you think of yourself as a translator as well as a poet now? I mean, it sounds, of course, the answer is yes. But also I was wondering how did Dante influence your own work? You know, not the work of the poem itself, but your other poems.
1: He did influence my work, although I didn't know it at the time. But when I looked back at the poems I was writing, especially the late poems uh, during that six-year period, I saw that I was aiming to get closer to not clarity, but something like clarity – where I had such admiration for him being able to incorporate his ideas in narrative and in a rhetorical surface. And I think that I always felt like I had to sacrifice one of those for clarity, and I wasn't willing to do that. But I thought, no, the challenge is to have it all, and I can work harder, and now I can see a model for doing that it's not a one-to-one. It's not that I translate something and then I get, oh, great idea. I'll do that. Um, It's just a kind of, I see how something is done. And now that's part of, you know, my own synaptic electricity. It's there. It's just like swimming. You learn to swim. And it's that muscle memory where the brain and the body are working together. So I think that there are so many aspects to poetry, the sound, the subjectivity, the, um, the construct, whether it's narrative, whether it's um, something non-narrative, the lyric, um, history, your own influences, the temperature in the room. You know, we can't deconstruct it all. But I think the closer we can get to maybe reenacting Maybe that's what actors and actresses do. They reenact something, and they have acted it. So they've done it, and now it's within them. And the next role they play, that's already going to be in the hardwiring, and that will make them be a different person. So I have been changed.
0: Right. Well, I really love uh, talking with you about this terrific project. And thank you for it. You know, you mentioned that Dante was dead, but Dante is very much alive in this translation. So thank you very much.
1: Oh, thank you, Kevin. It's been a delight.
0: You can read, listen to, and interact with selections from Dante's Purgatorio, translated by Mary Jo Bang on newyorker.com. Mary Jo Bang's latest poetry collection is A Doll for Throwing.
1: You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and rope The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses with help from Hannah Eisenman. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.